0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of the Lord.
1: Our Father, we are thankful for your word and we are listening. Help us to hear now and be transformed so that we might obey it. God, we pray that you would be with us now as we hear and as I preach. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I just realized... We didn 't say anything last week but this is a big move- up day for Christchurch kids so fourth graders we're glad that you're with us uh, if hopefully this isn't your first time in our service with us but you are uh, have you, as you've been transitioning into this service but we're excited for you to be with us uh, and to be learning from the Lord alongside us well throughout high school and college I took nearly six years of German, which is a super helpful language in Albuquerque uh, my sophomore year of high school, about 15 of us took, each took in a student from another high school student from Berlin to live in our homes uh, for about a month. And then the following year, we all went to Berlin and stayed with them. It was a true exchange. And the day that we picked up our students from DFW Airport, uh, in the first 10 minutes of the car ride back to my house, my, the student that was staying with us, Gregor, he asked me about tornadoes. I guess he had seen Twister or something and was really, really nervous about dying while he was in Texas. I told him that in 16 years of living in North Texas, I had never seen a tornado. And that night, about 30 miles away from my house, a tornado ripped through downtown Fort Worth, like shattering uh, many of the skyscrapers. And uh, oh, oh, I just realized this. Uh, Julia Avery, you're about to leave for uh, Fort Worth. Like tomorrow, It doesn't happen, 16 years, I never lived there. Or I never saw one, it's not an everyday thing. And that was the point that I told Gregor, like it's not, a, I've never seen these. But he thought that night, uh, he's been in Texas for like four hours and he's gonna die. And he thought that I was a great American liar. Uh, well, if you've ever had someone stay in your home, whether for a night or for an extended stay, even much longer than a month, you, you make preparations for this guest. Uh, for that month in high school, we moved my double bed out of my bedroom and in- instead replaced it with two single beds. Gregor was my, my first roommate, and we, we asked him before he arrived what kinds of foods he would like and dislike. Uh, when I was in Berlin, they did the same for me, and they made, very, uh, made lots of very considerate accommodations for me. They made sure to have ice and water and other drinks, which is not a European thing. Uh, when someone comes to live with you, life changes, Changes are made for you and for them. So well, so far, we've been working our way through this wonderful book of Exodus. And in the first 18 chapters, the narrative has been primarily about God getting Israel out of Egypt. But now in chapter 19, and really throughout the rest of the book, we find that Yahweh didn't just intend for them to be free from Egypt and yet still be enslaved to themselves. He intended to deliver them to the freedom of living and dwelling with himself. They had lived with a tyrannical king in Egypt, and now the king of life and love intended to dwell and live with them in the wilderness. And yet these people were not ready for his arrival. Not only were they unaware of what he really was like and who he was, because of their ignorance of this, this actually put them in danger, which initially strikes us as weird. And actually can kind of make us a little uncomfortable. All this, that, all this language that we just heard read about, like, the Lord might break out against them. And people might die and stuff. Exodus 19 is full of trembling and thunder and smoke and lightning and warning. Which can kind of make us uncomfortable. But by the time that we are soon walking out of here, I'm hopeful that we are walking out in greater assurance. and greater security and hope and faith and confidence. And who the Lord is. So let's do it. Let's walk through this chapter in two halves. We'll walk through this chapter in two halves of first the preparation for the king. Preparing for his arrival. And then the second half of the arrival of the king. So first the preparation for the king. I asked asked Kelsey to begin reading in verse 16. So let's read the first nine verses uh, together here. Chapter 19 of Exodus. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant— You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Okay, so the people are encamped around the mountain, even though these folks have been interested, or even though folks these days have been interested in finding out where this mountain is, Mount Horeb as it's called, or Mount Sinai as it's called in the Bible. We just don't know where it is. Uh, Somewhere in the Sinai wilderness of the Arabian, Arabian Peninsula. That's the best we got. Uh, but here they are, and they are camped out. They don't know it yet, but they are going to be camped here uh, in this location for almost a year. There are 59 more chapters of the Bible coming. It's not until Numbers 10 that Israel will finally pack their bags and leave this spot. But this, in and of itself, that they are here at the mountain, is an amazing result of God's promises do you remember way back at the beginning of this book, back in Exodus 3, when Moses is at the burning bush, and it's on this mountain, and Moses is going back and forth and back and forth with God with all the reasons why he shouldn't be the one to go to Egypt, and then God tells him from the bush in chapter 3, verse 12, "'But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, and you shall serve God on this mountain.'" When we were going through that chapter, I said something like, it's almost like God is giving Moses a vision. He is standing at the burning bush, and God is basically saying, turn around and just imagine what it's going to be like down there when thousands and thousands and thousands of free men, women, and children are here all together serving the Lord. And now, here they are, against all political and military odds, here they are ready to do just that. So God calls Moses to come up to the mountain for instructions. Moses is to remind the people how God has saved them. On eagle's wings, like, like Bilbo Baggins, Israel was completely without hope. The battle seemed lost, and then the eagles come in and carry Israel and Bilbo away to safety. Like a strong and powerful eagle, Yahweh had swooped in and carried Israel out of danger and now into peace. And then in verse 5, Moses is to tell them that God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Literally, what God says, if you will listen, listen to my voice. There is no uh, Hebrew word for very or really, so the way that you emphasize something is to just say it twice. And the Hebrew word here for listen is the Hebrew word of shema. Maybe you know this word from uh, the first word of Deuteronomy 6, where uh, Moses tells the people, hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one. Hear, shema, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one. It's not that they are just to hear and let the words enter their ears. I often tell my kids, you heard me, but you did not listen. You heard the words that that I was saying, but then nothing happened. Listening isn't just letting some combination of vowels and syllables enter into your ears and into your brain. I want my kids to listen, to hear, but then process and internalize my words that they might actually have effect in their life. And the same is true for Shema. Not to just listen, but to process, to internalize, to be affected, to be transformed by God's words. And so, the way to as the way to emphasize something in Hebrew is to say the word twice, They God, there supposed to shema, shema. They are to listen. In fact, there also is not a Hebrew word for obey. To obey is to shema. To, to obey is to hear and then obey. And so here in verse 5, what we see is, if you will shema, shema my voice and keep my covenant, this is really saying, and I think that our English translators have done a good job here in saying that, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you will hear and obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a treasured possession among all peoples. Now, to listen to God's words is to shema his words is a decent summary of the story of the Bible. Up until this point in Exodus 19 and moving forward, Adam listens and obeys, and when he does, blessing goes out to the world. Adam then doesn't listen and obey, and then curse goes out into the world. Humanity doesn't listen and obey to the words of God, and so curse by flood comes into the world. Noah listens and obeys, and blessing comes into the world. Abraham, he doesn't shema, he doesn't listen to the word of the Lord. He tries to bring blessing uh, into his family and into the world by his own means, by the abuse of his slave woman, Hagar. And what happens? There's curse. But then, in one wonderful instance in Abraham's life, he does shema. He hears God's word, and he trusts him by faith with his son, Isaac. And then, only after that instance, then now blessing then courses out of him into the nations. And so in one sense, God here is saying in Exodus 19 what he has been saying throughout the course of the whole Bible. Listen to the word of God. Listen, humanity. Listen to my word, and then blessing will come to you, and it will go to the nations. And that's what God is saying about Israel in verses 5 and 6 that if they will listen, if they will obey him, they will be God's treasured possession amongst all the peoples. In other words, out of all the peoples of the world, God has called Israel out from the nations for the nations. They will be a kingdom of priests, a nation of intermediaries acting on behalf of the world. God saving them has nothing to do with their desire, their ability to Shema their. Desire and ability to listen and obey. Remember, he saved them out of Egypt on eagles' wings, apart from nothing that they had done. But as God's image bearers, as his co-laborers, as God's middle management in his worldwide project of inhabitating the earth with his peace and with his presence, if they will live into that role, if Israel will hear, obey, and live into the role of priests, then blessing will come. But if they will not, Shema, if they will not live or act any differently than the nations around them, if they will not embrace their role as priests, then, blessings, then blessing to them and through them will not come. God has not come to just get them out from under the thumb of oppression and injustice. He has brought them out to restore Eden. He has brought them out to bring blessing and peace Of God's dwelling on earth with man in love. So, what verses five and six really isn't anything new in the story of the Bible. It is setting up the second half of this chapter and then the rest of Exodus and, in fact, the rest of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to follow. There is certainly an overarching covenant of humanity, of blessing and curse, depending on humanity's desire and ability to hear and obey. But there is a particular covenant that God is about to make. And it is a turning point in our Bibles that we're getting to, setting up here in chapter 19, and then we'll begin to get really into next week in chapter 20. People might call this the Mosaic Covenant, or the Sinaitic Covenant, or the Covenant of the Law, or even the Old Covenant, whatever you want to call it. And we will have plenty of time to call it lots of things and think about its purpose uh, and function, the role and the function of the law. Uh, Whatever you want to call it, the fact that there is a covenant with God and people at all is unbelievable. We are like so inoculated to the idea. As 21st century uh, sentimental Americans, we are so inoculated to the idea that there is an all-powerful creator God who ought to not only know my name, but he ought to be particularly interested in the very mundane details of my life. But for a person in the ancient Near East, what I just described would have been preposterous. Like Ra, the sun god, would ever care for everyday people and the goings-on of their life. You might be concerned with the dealings of the king, the one who was made in the image of the gods, but not everyday people. Covenants existed for sure in these days, but they were nearly always between kings. Of the dozens and dozens of Uh, existing records and documents that we have of covenants made in the ancient Near East, all but one of the dozens of Assyrian and Hittite and Babylonian covenants that we have, all but one are made from king and king of different empires. Only one is between a king and the people of the kingdom that he has covenanted himself to. So covenants in these days were for kings, Kings coming together for a common purpose, a common venture with norms and expectations. And so here comes Yahweh, the all powerful king of the universe, and he is making a covenant with not just Moses, but the entire nation. Each member of Israel is elevated to royal status. This is a kingdom made up of royal priests. Which is exactly what God first made humans to function as, as his image bearers in the first place. Not just one king who is made in the image of the gods, but an entire nation of image bearers who are acting on God's behalf and functioning to bring his rule and reign into the earth. Now we don't use the word covenant very often anymore, but one area of life in which we do still use that word is in the arena of marriage. We talk about marriage, not just like as a contract, where if someone breaks some of the language found in like heading 5, subsection C or something, then you just break the contract. Marriage is a covenant of love, a serious and solemn agreement of patient and settled will and intention. What we have here, beginning in Exodus 19, is a marriage ceremony. It is a marriage ceremony covenant that begins. It is not here in this chapter, but elsewhere God says, I will be their God and they will be my people, which is marriage language. You find that exact kind of language in the book of Song of Solomon. So God tells Moses to say to Israel, if they will shema shema, if they will really listen and obey, not to the word of, not to the, word of the Lord as all humans should, Yes, for sure, but also in a new way, in this new covenant, this covenantal marriage of God and man, man dwelling with God in peace and love and joy, if they will keep that end of the covenant, then peace and love and joy will spread further and further into the world, pushing back against the darkness, pushing back against the opposition of man against God, pushing out violence and division from the world, pushing out injustice and selfishness and sin from the world. God is saying, blessing is coming. Eden is about to be restored through this covenant, through this marriage ceremony of God and his people. And so starting in verse seven, Moses calls the elders and the people and he tells them all of this. He tells them everything that God has just said and what God intends to do and the covenant that he intends to initiate. And they're like, yeah, we're here for it. We want want all of that. Verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But then we get kind of a weird section, beginning in verse 9, where we read, When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. That's strange. Now, this is not like getting ready for the way things that the new roommate might like. Like they sent a survey to the Lord and asked him his likes and dislikes. God is not saying here, nor in all the law that will later come, I would like my own bed, and I would like ice in my drinks, I would like the thermostat set precisely at 71.4 degrees, and also I do not like pork. God isn't barging into Israel's house, now beginning to make a bunch of unreasonable demands. The whole earth is God's house, and he is instead preparing Israel to live with him, and to show his goodness to the nations. Like the firstborn sons in Exodus 13, the entire nation is to consecrate themselves. They are to prepare themselves. They are to entirely devote themselves to the worship of God. We don't know everything that this consecration involved, but at the very least it included washing their clothes and it included abstaining from sex for three days. This was a time of preparation. Just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that sometimes it's good for a husband and wife to abstain from sex, that they might devote themselves to prayer. Here too, this is a short-term period of fasting and intense devotion, of preparation for the arrival of the king. But they are to keep their distance. There are rules and limits to access the Lord. And so this mountain is like the tabernacle. This mountain is like the temple, which will follow it. Moses alone can go to the top of the mountain, much like the Holy of Holies, which will follow it in the tabernacle, in the temple. In Exodus 24, we find out that Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders, they can go up to a lower plateau, but not to the top. This is much like the outer holy place in the tabernacle, in the temple. While the people, they are to stay at the foot of the mountain. They are not to come near it, like the outer temple courts, that the people will stay in outside worship. This strikes us as strange, but we've said before that God's holiness is like the heat and the purity of the sun. It is life-giving and good, but it is also dangerous. Nearness to God is dangerous for impure and sinful humanity, not because God's holiness is so bad, but because God's holiness is so good. And it's because he is so good that he gives, us, gives the people warnings so that his radiance and his glory actually don't consume those he loves. It's like if you worked at like a nuclear reactor or something. If some visiting inspector came, he wouldn't think it unreasonable for you to make some demands that he like wears a hazmat suit. He wouldn't think, what are you crazy? I'll do whatever I want to. He was like, oh yes, that sounds great. Uh, you, he can only enter into the inner parts of this nuclear reactor with those who know the inner workings of this particular reactor. He's not going to just start walking in and like turning knobs and switches. There are rules there for his safety. Something that has such life giving power also has extraordinary life taking power. And so the people prepare themselves and they keep their distance. They have been delivered from the king of Egypt and now. Finally, they are ready for the arrival of their king, and he does. Secondly, the arrival of the king. You've already heard the rest of this chapter read from Kelsey earlier, but it is quite an arrival. There is thunder, there is lightning, there are trumpet blasts, there are dark clouds coming down on the mountain, perhaps earthquakes as the mountain itself trembles. Modern day folks have looked for volcanic mountains in this Arabian Peninsula because the mountain appears to be on fire. But this is much more than just a random rainstorm. This is much more than just an earthquake or a volcano or whatever whatever is going on here geologically. Yahweh, the God without rival, the God who has humiliated the Egyptian gods and judged Egypt, the God who has purchased and redeemed and delivered Israel, the God who has created heaven by the word of his power has now arrived in power and in glory. This is unprecedented here in the story of the Bible. In verse 20, Yahweh comes down on the mountain and then Moses comes up to the mountain. This is like the stairway that that Jacob saw where heaven and earth are connected. This mountain becomes the middle space of overlap between the realm of God's dwelling and that of human dwelling. Like the tabernacle and the temple to follow, the mountain is the place where God has come to live, to dwell with his people. Finally, this is a return to Eden. And yet, and unlike Eden, like before, the rest of this chapter is all about warnings. If the people come too close to the mountain, they'll die. Even if you might have bought the sun or the nuclear reactor imagery from earlier, this whole episode might still strike us a bit odd and out of place from our experience with God. But it shouldn't. It shouldn't. The holiness and nature of God is no different today than it is at this terrifying day here at this mountain. The nature and pure holiness of God is no different than this terrifying day, 3,500 years ago or so. God has not changed, but our access to him has. Here is the difference between you and this, the everyday Israelite who's standing here at the foot of the mountain, that the cross of Christ stands between you and the mountain. The cross of Christ is the doorway of peace through which you walk. The author to the letter of he- the Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If, a bee- if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Yes, we are coming to a different mountain, but our access to God is remarkably different. And yet, here's the thing confident, assured, welcoming access to God now as Father still does not change or negate His power and His glory. The glory of the triune God is no different today than it was that day at the mountain. And just like God called His people to worship at the mountain, He calls us to worship Himself as well. Certainly, in all of life, but specifically, in a very special way as the assembly of God's people, as God's people assembled here together, in particular uh, assemblies all over the world. In other words, what we are doing here on Sunday is a responsive act, a responsive action of faith, of gratitude. But it is a response, a response to God's initiation, meaning God is the primary actor in our lives and in this weekly service. As you read Exodus 19, yes, we should consider what perhaps our life and our experience might have been like at that mountain, but if you come away from Exodus 19 with anything other than the glory and grandeur and majesty of Yahweh, the Lord God of heaven, then we have read this chapter wrong. God is the primary actor in our lives and in our service together. And as I've been thinking through together with several of you again this week, in James K. Smith's book, You Are What What You Love. Seriously, just read that book. It's great. He says this, that when we tacitly assume that we are the primary actors in worship, then we also assume that worship is basically an expressive endeavor. We go to a church service— When we don't come to a church service with this God of Exodus 19 filling our vision, then we come to a church service expecting a worship experience. We come expecting, we come with the uh, perspective of perhaps ourselves as the primary actor and the feelings that get drummed up in us. Now, feelings and emotions certainly are not irrelevant. They are not a bad thing. They are one importantly vital way that we can love God with our whole heart, not just with our mind and our strength. But when we come wanting a worship, a worship experience, we come approaching Jesus as just one more commodity in life that will bring me feelings of happiness. We come treating this gathering of about an hour and a half not much differently, if we're honest with ourselves, not much more differently than we go to a movie or to a good meal for the feelings that it gives me. Instead, Smith writes this, in worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God makes, remakes, and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates or rehabits our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. And so what the Israelites have experienced here is undoubtedly something that God has done to them with his great power and his glory. And so we want to keep engaging our hearts like we thought through together in our confession of sin last week. We want to keep ourselves from rote and meaningless prayers and confessions and professions and songs. But coming to be with God's people on Sunday isn't just the capstone cherry on top, riding a wave of a wonderful week of spirituality. More often, coming together on Sunday afternoons together is more like the gym. Singing these songs, reading these confessions, reading these professions, sitting under his word, coming to the table, these are exercises, ways to fill our vision with the glory of God. You are not the primary actor here, just expressing your emotions. God is the primary actor in which we live and we breathe and we pray and we sing and we gather together in response to what he has done. This scene in Exodus 19, though, is one of joy and arrival and the good intentions of the people. Remember, they're like, Yeah, we're here for it, and everything that you have said, we will do. But their good intentions of idus and of shemaz and shemaz, it will only last a couple of days. They won't even be gone from this mountain. Not gone from this mountain, where they can look up and see the cloud of God's presence on this mountain before they abandon him completely. They, where they will repeat the story of Adam in the garden and they will listen to voices other than God. No joke, this is almost like them leaving the wedding reception with someone other than their newly married spouse, leaving with someone else to the honeymoon suite. What Israel needs, what humanity needs, is someone to enter into covenant with God the Father and perfectly listen, to perfectly obey the wisdom of God. To be a better covenant partner than Israel. To be the true Israel. To represent them in covenant faithfulness. And then through that faithfulness to actually bring blessing to the nations. The good news of the gospel is no longer do we need Moses on our behalf as our mediator to go up and down and up and down and up and down. Constantly acting on our behalf and then telling us what God has said to enact this new covenant Now Jesus, the mediator of a real new covenant, has gone up once and for all and has delivered us to the Father. He has ascended to heaven and he has been seated in victory. And the mountain place of dwelling with God is no longer a place of warning, is no longer a place of keeping at arm's length, but it is that of welcome and confident and warm fatherly embrace The triune God is a God of consuming holiness, but in Trinity he has brought his people near. We sang earlier, No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. Be still, my soul, and know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have bought your liberty. Rely then, Christian. Rely then, self, on his precious blood. Do not fear your banishment from God, for Jesus sets you free. That is the gym. That is lifting weights, exercising, and reminding ourselves of the glory of God and the love of God which brings us near. So here is the objective reality of every single human on the planet, every single human in this room. You are either in Adam, you are uh, trusting in Adam as your representative, as you follow him, as you follow Israel, as you follow even in your own example of hearing the word of God and then not listening, of disobeying in a distrusting lack of contentment. And left to ourself, this is all of us. Even with good intentions, of singing songs of we are listening to your word left to ourselves none of us do seeing what seems to be beautiful and good in the world and then taking it for ourselves in a misplaced worship and thus keeping ourselves left to ourselves far from god and at perpetual arms length or if you are not in adam the only other option is to be in christ jesus christ as the righteous one, as your representative, so that we are no longer at distance from God, but are brought near. As we professed together earlier from Hebrews 10, that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. How? How do we enter the very holy of holies? Israel was not allowed to. They are not allowed into the top of the mountain. But now we enter into the holy of holies how through his flesh, his broken body and blood on our behalf. And because of all that, as we professed earlier, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean, free from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. As God's people, he has consecrated us to himself as a kingdom of priests, he has set us apart for worship. And to live into the high calling of walking distinctly and uprightly before the nations. Not to earn our salvation. Remember, he did that on the eagle's wings. He did that by the eagle's wings of grace so that no man may boast. But because our salvation has been earned, he has now called us into our reality as a kingdom of priests. To walk uprightly before the nations. Now, I'll be the first to admit that this sermon maybe didn't have a ton of practical application. But I think for tonight, that's okay. I think we tend toward thinking about the Bible as a plan for better living. And Exodus 19 might not give us a ton of plans. We need to go do our laundry tonight or something. Wash our clothes. There's not a ton here But the Bible, if we understand it not as a story of ourselves and a story of a plan for better living, but a story of God, and that we cannot understand ourselves rightly until we understand the glory and love of God rightly, then the Bible isn't primarily about doing, but the Bible is primarily about being. Not necessarily about discerning God's will around every turn and making right decisions, but about being the right kind of people who God is shaping and forming through the work of Christ in our life. Or as I've heard one author say, we can make the right decisions all the time while being the wrong kind of people. And yet we'll have the next 10 weeks to further consider just loads and loads of practical application. If you missed the announcement last week, we're going to spend 10 weeks in the Ten Commandments, one week per commandment, to just unpack all the practical application you could ever dream of. But tonight, the glory of the Lord ought to fill our vision. And the glory of the Lord filling our vision actually then does have very practical application in our lives, does it not? Our behavior actually reflects what we say and believe to be true, the way that we speak in gentleness and love, the way that we serve in selflessness, the way that we respond and react to suffering or injustice, even the way that we behave online. What we believe about the glory of God actually affects all of that. All of this matters to a watching world. If to me, an unbeliever, all that you are as a Christian is just you get to live your life exactly like I do, but you have to go to church on Sunday, well, I don't think I want in on that. But if God has called us as a kingdom of priests to act on behalf of the world, to take the glory of God to the Lord, then all of this matters. In other words, as Martin Luther says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. So we'll have lots and lots of time to think about that in the coming weeks. But if you are a Christian, God has not just saved you from sin and slavery. He has delivered you to life and freedom. He has delivered you to become and to be a royal and priestly kingdom. A people who is consecrated to the worship of God from the nations and for the nations to the glory of the Lord. Let's pray that that might be true. our holy and righteous and just God. We are floored by your glory. Help us to see it even more. Help us to know it and believe it. Help us to experience your glory and your righteousness, your love, your justice. Help us to know you more. We pray that by doing so, we might uh, not be kept at arm's length from you, but we might understand the lengths at which you have gone to bring us near. That you are no longer content to keep us at arm's length, but that through the blood and the work of Christ on our behalf, you you have adopted us as sons and daughters. You have made us your own and you have consecrated and sent us out as your middle management on this earth, as your kingly priests, as your image bearers. Help us to see you, help us to know you, help us to trust you, help us to love you more because of what you have done through the cross on our behalf. And we pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.